we have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you! Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, T-man, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. I wonder, in your relationship with you and God, which role do you take? Are you the the designer, or are you the designed? Are you the creator or the created? Have you made up God or has God made up you? Not difficult questions really, I hope, um, this evening. And then we come to Obadiah. Obadiah. 
Let's see, the thing is, are the, the boundaries of God, like what God is like and what God does and what God can do, uh, are, are the, is the kind of, our understanding of God defined by what we are comfortable with? Or are we prepared to allow God's self-revelation in his word to shake us and to, to move our assumptions? Are we uh, prepared to let God be God and confront us in his word and unsettle us and maybe tell us things that we don't like very much? Obadiah, uh, the shortest book in the Old Testament, abrupt, really, really compact and um, a, a prophecy that interacts with, with significant other parts of the Old Testament, uh, particularly with Jeremiah and big kind of sections, I don't know, shared material, swapping between the two of them. Um, that's what we have with Obadiah. Look with me at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Obadiah means the servant of the Lord. It's a bit ambiguous. It could be a name. It could be a title. Uh, we don't really know. But he has a vision, this Obadiah. And when does he have it? Well, the target is a nation called Edom, the descendants of Isaac's son Esau, who lived at the southern border of, Je- of Judah. And we know a bit about their history as we read through the Bible. We see in Genesis 25 that Rebecca, has, uh, she's, she's pregnant, she has twins in her womb. The twins are struggling and fighting with each other. She seeks the Lord and the Lord says, two nations are in your womb. And these two brothers, they, they treated each other pretty badly. And they went on to become two nations, Israel and Edom. And often these nations, they're in conflict with each other. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 tells us about a time when Edom attacked Jerusalem. Uh, That's an interesting one because it's quite likely that at that time there was a man called Obadiah who was associated with a group of prophets. Um, That's quite interesting. But these conflicts between these two places, they happened all the time. They were frequent. In fact, Edom almost became a kind of stereotypical enemy. Now this book of Obadiah is, I think it's quite clearly reacting to a, a specific moment of conflict between these places. Now we, we get a bit of a feel for, the, for what was going on, don't we? If we look at verse 11, it says, um, Strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Now verses 12 to 14, maybe you heard it, it was read about this day, this day of misfortune, of destruction, of trouble, of disaster, of disaster, of disaster, of trouble, of calamity. In, in, on this day, Edom wasn't the main aggressor, they're not the main attacker. Edom is kind of on the sidelines gloating, they're the cheerleaders. I think the most likely event was what happened in 586 BC when the mighty armies of Babylon, uh, they'd already invaded, but eventually Jerusalem fell to them and the people of Jerusalem were either slaughtered or exiled. It was an event which really was beyond catastrophic. Awful, awful times. The suffering was unimaginable, the brutality of it was sickening. And, and, and for these people of Jerusalem, what, what compounded the awfulness was that as this happened to them, it felt to them that God had abandoned his people and forgotten his promises, or uh, that God just hadn't been able to control things and he'd, he'd lost grip of everything and it had just gone, he'd been kind of overtaken by a greater power. In that time, um, just afterwards, in Psalm 137, the psalm, psalmist laments by the rivers of Babylon. Um, And in that psalm it says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. 
It seems that Obadiah, this prophecy of Obadiah, is located at these times. Uh, and as the prophet, um, through the law through the prophet, foretells the destruction of Edom, it seems to be looking forward 33 years to 553 BC, when the Babylonians again attacked, but this time Edom, and they fell. The vision of Obadiah. Who's listening? Who's the audience here? Uh, We're told this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. A message about Edom. Or it could say a message to Edom. Who's Obadiah speaking to? Is he speaking to Edom? Has he gone to Edom to tell them this? Maybe. I wonder what they would make of it. Or, Or is he speaking to the people of Judah about Edom? And if he's speaking to them, we need to think, where is he located? There are two options, really. Now, most of the people of Judah have been taken into exile in Babylon. They're there. The prophet Ezekiel was there. Maybe Obadiah was there with the exiles. But there were some left in the city, the poorest, the lowest. They're the least of this defeated nation. They're in Jerusalem. Maybe Obadiah was there with them. What are they making of this message about Edom? Uh, We have to ask about ourselves, don't we? We're listening, I hope, um, listening to this prophet over these next two Sundays. Um, And this is weird for us, isn't it? We're so far removed from these times. We we, we struggle to kind of reconnect it. It's it's faint, it's far. But but for for the prophet, it was vivid, it was technicolour, it was pulsating for him. We have to think, how do we hear this message about an ancient nation that we know very little about? These are some of the things we're going to have to wrestle with, perspectives we'll have to wrestle with as we work through this little prophet this week and next. There are five things I want us to consider in this prophet. Three for this week, two for next week. And here's the first one. First one is the Sovereign Lord. Verse 1. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. It's fairly intuitive for us just to think God, like one God over everything. That, that's our kind of our natural thinking when we think about God. But that wasn't obvious in the ancient world. In the ancient world, each territory had its own deity. So, so if you move from here to here, you have to find out which deity rules here so you can worship them rightly. Worship was very local. One of the things that made the destruction of Jerusalem so difficult was that it looked like the Lord had yielded his territory to the Babylonians. So imagine that you're there with the dregs in Jerusalem. You live in the ruins. You can still smell the burning. Everywhere you look is a reminder of loss. And when you think about the Lord, the Lord who had promised so much in the past, he seems to have lost grip. And then in the midst of it, this Obadiah stands up and he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. In the midst of it, the Lord is proclaiming his interest in the history of this particular people. And his interest is this, do you see? The next line. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. The sovereign Lord has acted and his action is to stir up the nations to go to war against Edom. Can you imagine how mind-bending that would be for the survivors in Jerusalem or even for the exiles in Babylon? In their context, in their circumstances, it looks like the Lord has been overpowered and his purpose is thwarted. And Obadiah says that is so far from the truth, it is ridiculous. The Lord is directing the decisions of the nations. Now, now these nations who are being stirred up, they're not not hearing the word of the Lord and obeying it. These nations, they're, they're pursuing their agendas. 
that these nations are they're seeking that their political stability or their, their economic advance. And that they're strategizing about how, how they should act next, what they should do. And within each of these nations, there's going to be a load of advisors and a load of influencers. And each one of these nations is going to have its own kind of philosophy of engagement in the, in the political world. And, and that's going to be kind of derived from its own unique history and experience. And all those plans of the nations, it, there's going to be a whole mixture of things that are probably okay, and a mixture of things that are terrible and wicked and awful. And these nations, they're going to be seeking to serve their own deities. You, you get the idea? That there are millions and millions of decisions and actions that shape the plans of these nations. And Obadiah just cuts above it all. And he says in that mix, the decisive and the deciding power is that the Lord has sent an envoy. You don't really know what the envoy is. Uh, an angel of some sort perhaps. It doesn't matter because the point is that over and above all the plans of all the nations, the sovereign Lord directs the outcome. And his plan is that the nations decide to attack Edom. And notice that it says, let us rise against her for battle. It's feminine, which highlights the attack on the territory, perhaps more so than an attack on the people. An attack on the territory. Now we wind back the clock uh, quite a long way. We go back to the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 2, uh, the, the, ex, uh, the Exodus people have come out of Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land. They've got to go through the region of Edom. And the Lord speaks to them specifically about it. He says, You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I've given the hill country of Seir, I've given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. This, this land of Edom, it belongs to the descendants of Esau because the sovereign Lord gave it to them. Now they didn't acknowledge that. That they thought they held it by their own power and might, as we'll come to see. But the Lord has designated the place for them. But now, they forfeited the privilege. And the Lord who gave is now exercising his sovereign power to take the territory back. Now this prophet Obadiah, he tells of the sovereign Lord's dealing with Edom. And he goes on to speak about the sovereign Lord's dealing with the nations and then, and then with the people of Judah. He's not a territorial deity. He's not limited to just one location. He is God Almighty. He has final, full and free power. And he uses it. He uses it over history, over all of history, over all places, over all people. Now, Obadiah ends where he begins. At the end, deliverers go up on the Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's, or, or even that the kingship, the, the dominion power, will belong uniquely to the sovereign Lord. That the dominion is the Lord's. He doesn't inherit it, he's not given it, he creates it from nothing. Now Jeremiah 10 says, the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, he's the eternal king. Now he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings, but what does it look like in the details of history? Well verse 1. The Sovereign Lord exercises his purposes through those millions and millions of decisions of people in different places to bring about the destruction of Edom. Now verse 2, the result of the nation's war, the result of what the nations do is that the Lord says, 
I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Who did that? The nations or the Lord? Both. Didn't they? But whose purpose is decisive? The Lord. You know, for those survivors who are in Jerusalem or the exiles in Babylon, if they're despairing of their circumstances, it's because they haven't reckoned with the sublime, the sublime majesty of the sovereign Lord. He continues to work out his purposes and there's nothing to stop him. But what about us as we hear that today? We'll look a bit more at this next week, but it's right to us to ask from, from where we now sit in redemption history with the work of Christ in the past. Now what should we think about this sovereign working of our God? What's his purpose as he wields this great power? What's he up to? Well, one of the clearest statements of it is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 says, verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11 says he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1 says that God's plans are to do what he wants. His good pleasure. And he works everything toward achieving the plan. And the plan is for all things to be united together under Christ. Everything under Christ Jesus. The Son of God who was made Son of Man. Who went to the cross to take the curse of our sin. The one who, who went into death to bring with himself all of his people out of death. And to bring all of his people into the indestructible bliss of the new creation. And over everything is Christ. Christ reigning. Christ on the throne of thrones as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All things together under Christ. That's God's plan. And in eternity the redeemed will say, Worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. That's God's ultimate purpose. But bring it back, bring it back into Obadiah. As we begin to read Obadiah and we see this, that the Lord directing the nations to war, we say, why is the Lord directing the nations to war against Edom? What's his plan? Well, ultimately, ultimately, God is, a, is, is acting out this, this kind of exhaustive, this meticulous control over these billions of decisions and plans of men, including the nations warring against Edom. He's working these things out in conformity with his plan to bring everything together under Christ. Apply that to the way we see the world around us. And what does the world look like to us today? Maybe times when we empathise with the, the dregs in Jerusalem. Bewildered, baffled, despairing maybe. We, we read the news and we think it's just all madness, isn't it? It's chaos. We look at our lives, so the, the lives of those around us. And we think it doesn't make sense. John Piper wrote this, he said, No Christian should have the jitters that the world, or their lives, are careening out of control toward a meaningless catastrophe. We may feel like people tossed around in an old stagecoach pulled by six wild horses, but fear not. God sits serenely over our heads, and the hands that made the world hold the reins. 
and more than that. We want to say more. We want to say the end to which it is all working is everything united under Christ. And all the praise and the adoration of everything poured out to Christ for our joy and his glory forever and ever and ever. That's what God is doing when he sends his envoy among the nations to call them to war against Edom. And Obadiah's message is kingship and dominion. It belongs to the Lord. The Lord is sovereign. How does that sit with you? Now if, if the Lord's ultimate purpose of dealing with Edom was the uniting of all things under Christ... Do, do we know anything about his more immediate purposes of what he's trying to do? Well, the second thing to see in Obadiah, the deception and the defeat of pride. Now, why is the Lord doing this? What's his problem with Edom? What is he against? Well, we're told straight away, aren't we? Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Pride. And Obadiah tells us three things about this pride. First of all, it is deceptive self-confidence. What's Edom saying? Who can bring me down? I am untouchable. I am secure. I am safe. Classic pride. The idea that we are independent. The essence of sin, that declaration of independence from God. Right there when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They refused to rely on the Lord and his word. They, they denied the fact of their dependence. That They attempted to define themselves on their own terms and by doing so ended up redefining who God was. But it's deceptive, isn't it? You see that this pride of your heart has deceived you. How are they deceived? Well, they're deceived about their security. They've built their home, they did it themselves, and they say, we're safe. You can't touch me. Who can bring me down? Nonsense, isn't it? Complete nonsense. Now, the only way to have that kind of security is to have complete knowledge of every threat and danger that might possibly come to you, and the power to resist them. The only way to have that kind of security is to be God, or to be held by God. And to have that confidence in themselves... It's to think that they're God. They wouldn't put it like that, of course, but that's their deception. Who can bring me down? It's all about them. It's self-centred, isn't it? They're thinking about themselves, that the measure of everything is me. Their security is based upon what they have done. They have made their home. They have built it. Of course, just a moment reflection shows how wrong they are. Every Every breath they take, every beat of their heart, every, every moment, the atoms of their existence continue to be. They are living proof that they are derived and dependent. It's like a little child walking along a wall, maybe a wall like this, and the parent is, is holding their hands as they walk along. And really the parent is carrying them as they go along. And the child is saying, look at me, look what I'm doing. It's fine if you're a child, isn't it? But it's pervasive in the human heart. We're all bent towards it. It can come out in all kinds of ways, this pride. Uh, we'll see next time how it came out in Edom's attitude towards others. But there are many ways, simple ways that pride is seen. Pride struggles to be thankful. Do you? It, to give thanks is to acknowledge we haven't done it. The pride struggles to say sorry. Do you? Pride struggles to ask for help. 
The pride struggles to take God at his word. Now when, when God's word teaches ways that are in conflict perhaps with our contemporary culture. Now at the moment that's going to be about sexual ethics or marriage or abortion or gender issues. Pride says, I, I can't accept what God says because, because pride says I am more loving than God. Or I know better than God. When God's word teaches about his sovereignty or about his judgment or about, or about hell. Pride says I can't accept it. Because pride says I'm, I, I'm more compassionate than than God. It's a, a deceptive, distorted understanding of who we are, of, of who God is and of who we are in relation to him. Pride. Pride is deceptive self-confidence and it's not sustainable. Edom says, who can bring me down to the ground? Well, they haven't reckoned for the one who holds the destinies of all. Verse 4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. It doesn't matter how far they go, it doesn't matter how high they imagine themselves to be, they can never put themselves beyond the reach of God. They don't believe it, of course, they think they're free. That they soared in the pretense of their freedom, they celebrated that they were without limits. I think it was Piper again who said, freedom from God feels exhilarating, but it's the exhilaration of skydiving without a parachute. It says it doesn't matter how high you are. It doesn't matter how safe you think you are. It doesn't matter how untouchable you think you are. Even from there, I will bring you down. It's not sustainable. And it must not be sustainable. Must not. See, what, what Obadiah is doing in, in, in his prophecy, he's showing that the Lord is sovereign. Dominion belongs to the Lord. And so therefore we have an, an inherently unstable condition when the pride of man rises up. The sovereignty of Lord and, and, and the sovereignty of self, pride, they can't coexist. And it must not, pride must not endure because the Lord is sovereign. In Isaiah 2 it says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. For all that is exalted they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted. And what would happen if, if the Lord was not against the self-exaltation of human pride? And what would happen? And what's God's purpose in the world? Ephesians 1 is to bring everything together under Christ. Ephesians 1.6 says it's, it's, it's the purpose is to the praise of his glorious grace. The purpose is for all things to be under Christ, where the redeemed will find all delight in praising the beauty of God's astonishing grace. The Lord must be exalted because he alone is worthy of all praise. Uh, and under that, humanity's greatest happiness is found when we set the greatest good as our greatest treasure. That is the, the imperishable bliss when God is exalted and our joy is found in him. But pride stands square against God's purpose. Pride exalts self and so it cannot exalt Christ. There's only going to be one end. Now the Lord must not share his throne. Eternity and all happiness depends on it. Now those exiles in Babylon and the survivors in Jerusalem, everything, they, everything they'd known and loved had been turned upside down. And in the mix of, of what was going on, the, the angst, the confusion, that this message of Obadiah is that they must reckon with God. 
The Lord is sovereign. His plans will prevail. All the proud and the pride will be brought down. They must reckon with God. And so must we. They're not God as we want him to be. Not, Not God who kind of conforms to the expectations of the world around us. Not, not God who can be packaged and kind of put away. Not God who can be ignored most of the time. But God as he is. God in his sovereign glory. God who must be exalted. God who will bring down the proud. Not just those of Edom, but those of that of all people. Now our pride cannot survive before God. It must not. And our pride will be defeated willingly or not. But it will not prevail because the Lord alone will be exalted. All things will be under Christ. And either that is the joy of our hearts or the terror of our eternity. But it will be. We must reckon with God. We must. I wonder if you do. I reckon maybe one of the reasons that we... We draw back from the Lord. We, we struggle to reckon with him. Is We very quickly create a caricature. Now, we, maybe we hear of the, the sovereignty of God and we imagine him as cruel and harsh and detached. Or, or we hear that he will bring down the proud and we imagine him as cold and exacting. We've got to reckon with God as he is. And when we do, so often we're going to find ourselves astonished at who he is. Here's a third thing for us to see in Obadiah this evening. is the terrible and tender God. Now there's no mistaking as Obadiah launches into there that what will happen to Edom. It's very clear, isn't it? The Lord says, I will bring you down. Verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. Verse 5 elaborates on the extent of what is coming. He uses a couple of images. Thieves, if thieves come to you, if robbers at night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. So, you know, if a thief comes, he, he comes and he just picks and chooses the things that he wants and then he goes. He leaves something. Or, or when someone passes through a, a vineyard gleaning the grapes, he doesn't take all of them. He just takes what he needs. But that won't be the case with Edom. They're about to be obliterated. There's no consolation. Everything is going to be lost. There's nothing to protect them from the judgment of the Lord. The Lord is wielding his dominion, his supreme unmatched dominion against Edom. They cannot run and they cannot hide. Next time we'll think a bit more about the justice of it. But it's right that we just pause and I guess think for a moment about how terrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God can't play with him he's the mighty one he's the creator now we we kind of humanity today we barely understand the universe do we now the greatest experts among us have only just scratched the surface of a particular specialism along among myriads of specialisms how do we measure the power of God who called it all into being who holds it all in his hand How do we comprehend the infinite power of the one who directs the affairs of all people, all times, and does so in a way that preserves human desiring and deciding? And the more we think about it, our minds begin to crumble, don't they? Our our imaginations begin to, to break as we consider all of that power, let alone that holiness, to be directed against us. That's what's happening to Edom. 
God is saying, I'm against you. And I will bring you down. There's nothing, nothing that comes close to how awful and how terrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And then, and then in the middle of verse 5, the Lord, he interjects into his own declaration and he says, Oh, oh. It's the kind of sound you hear at a funeral. Expresses grief. Now the Lord, he interjects into his own declaration of judgment with horror. Oh. The Lord doesn't delight in these things. There's no glee. He's not like Edom. Edom who gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord is not like that. The Lord mourns as he pronounces what must be. He mourns at the disaster he's bringing to Edom. If this is the God with whom we must reckon, he is terrible and he is tender. And has both those at the same time. A tenderness to his terror and a terror to his tenderness. Oh. You see, the Lord's purpose is unshakable ultimate purpose the end of all things is to bring everything together under Christ Christ Jesus who died Christ Jesus who who was risen who's been exalted, who's been given the name above all names who reigns even now on the throne of thrones before whom every knee will bow to Christ is given dominion and kingship belongs to Christ the Lord and Christ, God incarnate he reveals to us what God is like, he shows us what the Father is like And when Christ approached Jerusalem, he pronounced judgment on it. He he said this, he said, The days will come, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He will judge the nations. He pronounces uh, over Jerusalem what will happen to those who reject him. The book of Revelation uh, pictures the Lord Jesus treading the nations and being splattered with their blood. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a, a terrible thing to have Jesus be against you. And yet as he declares the judgment on Jerusalem, as he pronounces a just judgment on these people, look at his face. What's on his cheeks? He weeps. He weeps. That is the God with whom we have to do. Perfect in justice and perfect in love. And his love is his justice and his justice is his love. He's full of fury against sin and he's full of compassion and mercy to sinners. And we cannot play these things off against each other. He is terrible and he is tender. He pronounces judgment over Edom and he cries out in grief. He weeps over Jerusalem as he declares its doom. The heart of God is revealed in Obadiah. Revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tender and terrible. The lion and the lamb. Not one and then the other. But maximally both. All the time. He's not conflicted. He's not confused. He's wonderful. So what about us? Edom said, Who will bring me down? Or before the sovereign Lord, I seek for our hearts to ask, Who will bring me up? 
who will bring me up? And Ephesians 2 says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Who will bring me up? Only God in Christ. Only God in Christ. And if he brings us up then there is none who can bring us down. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Now ask the Lord what he's putting on your heart this evening.